0: flag I see, a certain word, and democracy, what is America to me? The house I live in, the friends that I have found, the folks beyond the railroad, and the people all around, and the farmer, the sailor on the sea, the men who built this country, that's America to me. Washington and Jackson and the tasks that still remain, the little bridge at Concord where freedom's fight began, our Gettysburg and Midway and the story of the town, the house I live in, my neighbors white and black. The people who just came here are from generations back. The town hall and the soapbox, the torch of liberty. A home for all God's children, that's America to me. The house I live in, the goodness everywhere. A land of wealth and beauty With enough for all to share A house that we call freedom The home of liberty But especially the people That's America to But especially the people
1: and thank you, comrades, for attending tonight. This is the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies, and tonight is June twenty seventh, 2023. Our class tonight is going to be on the American Revolution as we get prepared for the 247th Independence Day of this country next week. We wanted to go ahead and touch on this topic, give the Marxist positive analysis on the American Revolution, and that is going to be this week and next week. Today's class is mostly going to be going over the colonial period and the start of the war, as well as the Declaration of Independence. Next week is going to go into polemicizing against the ultra-leftist narratives around it and more.
2: Yeah, so before we start, I just wanted to let everyone know that the singer from that song we just heard was actually an American communist. A lot of people probably don't know Paul Robeson, but we wanted to make sure that everyone knew that. The American communist movement, and actually the whole world communist movement, has always seen the American Revolution as a progressive step in history. This was a bourgeois democratic revolution that pulled the world away from the remnants of feudalism, and it inspired revolutions from the French Revolution to the Haitian Revolution, the Bolivarian, and various other revolutions later on. Yeah, so what we'll be learning today, what the colonial period in the 13 colonies was like, and what the conditions were that compelled the colonists to independence, about the start of the American Revolution in 1774, um, following the course of the war to 1776. And I'd like to say that uh, though the combat started in 1774, the revolution was really beginning in 1763 after the Seven Years' War. This is where all the revolutionary uh, organs Worth starting to form. And then lastly, about the Declaration of Independence and its role in history. Introduction. The colonial and revolutionary periods of American history are full of contradictions, internal and external, internally between the various classes, the bourgeoisie, petty bourgeoisie, proletariat, and slaves between the colonists and the indigenous peoples, between slaves and slave owners, and between women and the exclusion from suffrage and equality with their male counterparts. There were the external contradictions as well between the colonists and the British empire, the British and the French empires, the British bourgeoisie and the proletariat against the monarchy and aristocracy and between the British bourgeoisie and proletariat themselves. The history of the American Revolution is complex, and only through the process of dialectical and historical materialist analysis can the dynamics and the transient nature of this era be understood properly. All contradictions stated above feed into the ebbing and flowing between progress and reaction. Understanding that level of consciousness is dependent on the modes of production and social being of humanity in its proper context is also important. This class serves only as an introduction into the revolutionary American period and further independent reading is insisted upon. Communists have always held that the American war for independence was the first installment of the American bourgeois democratic revolution with the completion coming nearly a century later during the American Civil War and the abolition of chattel slavery. And then there's some quotes by Lenin and Marx on the American Revolution. The history of modern civilized America opened with one of those great, really liberating, really revolutionary wars, of which there have been so few compared to the vast number of wars Of conquest which, like the present imperialist war, were caused by squabbles among kings, landowners, or capitalists over the division of usurped lands or ill-gotten gains. That was the war of the American people waged against the British robbers who oppressed America and held her in colonial slavery. In the same way, these civilized, in quotes, bloodsuckers are still oppressing and holding in colonial slavery hundreds of millions of people in India, Egypt, and all parts of the world. This was Lenin in a letter to the American workers. And then, the working men of Europe feel sure that as the American War of Independence initiated a new era of ascendancy for the middle class, so the American anti-slavery war will do for the working classes. They consider it an earnest of the epic to come that it fell to the lot of Abraham Lincoln, the single-minded son of the working class, to lead his country through the matchless struggle for the rescue of an enchained race and the reconstruction of a social world. Marx, in an address of the International Working Men's Association to Abraham Lincoln, president of the United States, 1865. And then we'll go into uh, what happened after the Seven Years' War. So here's a rough breakdown of class composition in the colonies. I, I have to preface it saying it was hard finding this data because most academics refer to them as Upper class, middle class, and lower class. So I had to extrapolate a little bit. But of the nearly three million colonists in America, the breakdown by class can roughly be broken down as such: the largest class was the petty bourgeoisie, the small property owners, such as yeomen, farmers, fur traders, small merchants, master craftsmen, artisans, etc made up about 40% of the population. The proletariat, the landless laborers, such as apprentices, laborers, indentured servants, farm workers, sailors, ship hands, etc., made up approximately 20% of the population. Slaves made up about 13% of the population. The rest were the national bourgeoisie who were comprised of Slave owning gentry, large merchants, land speculators, etc. So the Seven Years' War and the French Indian War. Wars for colonial conquest at a glance. Across the globe, the British and French empires struggled against each other for colonial conquest. From 1754 to 1763, the theater and the American colonies fought their segment popularly known as the French and Indian War. For the British and their colonial governors, the war was meant to kick the French out and establish a monopoly of American commodity markets by the East India Company. For the colonies, particularly in Pennsylvania and Virginia, the war was for access to the Ohio River Valley for fertile land. The war cost about $29 billion in today's uh, money. Up until the late 18th century, the American colonies had an agrarian economy. However, due to the richest gentry and due to the degrading soil conditions from inefficient tobacco plantations and farming, there was a need to utilize new fertile land. The American colonists, particularly the rich gentry, expected to gain access to the Ohio River Valley, but the British Empire instituted the Proclamation of 1763 to restrict westward movement in order to benefit British land speculators. And here's a quote from uh, the American Revolution by the old CPUSA historian, Herbert Aptheker. This proclamation line, barring further American westward movement, temporarily the British promise, sought to favor British land speculators as well as fur traders, and had blasted the hopes of the Ohio Land Company, in which George Washington, Richard Henry Lee, and George Mason were major investors, in favor of the British Vandalia Company. This cutthroat competition continued down to the days of the Revolution, so that, for example, Virginia land claims to acreage in present Kentucky and Ohio were threatened in 1774 by the Walpole Company, in which such figures as Lord Camden and the Earl of Hertford had invested and which had been sponsored by George Grenville himself the same man who was prime minister from 1763 to 1765. The political and economic effects of the Seven Years' War. The sun never shined on a cause of greater worth. Tis not the affair of a city, a country, a province, or a kingdom, but of a continent of at least one-eighth part of the habitable globe. The removal of the French from the territory, the American colonists saw the true nature of the relationship with the British Empire. The colonists felt the weight of the British policy in very concrete and provoking ways. They saw increased centralization of administration, enhanced militarization of colonial life, and the stationing of thousands of soldiers in America increasing British restrictions upon established civil rights. They saw efforts to establish an episcopate in America, whittle away the political democracy that had been established in certain of the colonies, and inhibit its appearance elsewhere, make the judiciary in the colonies quite independent of the colonists or their legislatures vitiate the powers of the colonial legislatures in additional ways, particularly by curbing their power over the purse, confine the colonists within a narrow strip of land, hugging the seacoast, rigidly enforce the commercial and manufacturing restrictions, they saw an ever more prominent role being given to the British Navy, trials without jury established in certain colonial cases, swarms of uh, office holders moving in from England to take over the American Civil Service, writs of assistance being issued and the sanctity of their homes violated, coveys of informers crowding the ports and being paid for the bringing misery to others, new and burdensome systems of taxation concocted and levied, new restraints placed upon their economic development, and monopolies given to favored English companies or individualists summed itself up. In their opinion of of Thomas Jefferson expressed in 1774 as a deliberate and systematical plan of reducing us to slavery.
1: First round of questions and comments.
3: Yeah, I was just curious how these merchants could get so rich that they could challenge a king or a kingdom. That's basically just a very general
4: question, but it just seems shocking.
2: Early on in the colonies, these merchants were well-established. They they had more rights to trading with the French, the Spanish, and other empires. After the kicking out of the French, that was where uh, the British controlled the monopoly. No longer were they allowed to trade with outside empires unless given the right to do so by the British crown.
5: All right, thank you comrades. Yeah, this class is so special because the American Revolution is our thing. In Korea, you know, DPRK, they trace their history, they, they go back with that. In Russia, they trace their history, they do that. In France, even, they go back. But this one is our thing. And at this point in time, whether it's because of the internet or, or who knows what is behind this, but there's some kind of movement in our country trying to reject all of this history, which at the time, this was very good things going on the American Revolution. So it's our duty to uphold and study and share this history. No one else is going to do it for us. It's our thing. No one else will do it. Everybody else has their own struggle. So that's what I want to tell all the comrades and anyone who's going to listen in on this on the the computer or the podcast. Think of living at your house and you never clean it. Someone has to do it. So this is our job. Thank you.
1: Thank you, comrade. And I just want to add to that, real quick, that it's an ultra left trend that we're seeing today of people basically damning the American Revolution using 21st century goggles, saying, oh, you know, it was counter revolutionary, it upheld slavery, it enabled indigenous genocide. There's nuance to the American Revolution for sure. And, but we're dialectical materialists. We understand. A lot of the nuance of this and we understand why it was progressive at the time. And so that's why we want to hammer this home and have this class.
5: I just thought it was really interesting that breakdown of the classes that they offered in colonial times and the largest one at 40% being the petty bourgeois. I thought that was really interesting and really sort of speaks to what Marx described in the manifesto of like the industrial revolution leading to increase of the proletariat and also of the petty bourgeois under capitalism continuing to be cast down into the proletariat. So I just thought that was an interesting statistic. Thanks.
6: Thank you, comrades. The American revolution, 1776, At the time, people though, historically, there was no such thing really formally as communism, but as Marx pointed out, it was the step leading to that. So that's what we mean is we need to look at the parts that were progressive, but for this time in history to build from that, we have no illusions about what led to the negatives of where we are now as of today, but nonetheless, it was the step in the right direction. Like for example, Jesus said, "Obey them and do what and and do what they tell you, but don't do what they do." Likewise, what we can take from the American Revolution of seventeen seventy six is the progressive sides, but don't make the mistakes in upholding slavery and otherwise else that is backwards. Thank you.
1: Thank you, comrade. And just real quick, I want to recommend that comrades read William Z Foster's History of the CPUSA because that actually goes back to the American Revolution, and there's a chapter about the early worker struggles in the times of Jeffersonian democracy and the establishment of the United States. So there were people in the proletariat that were starting to organize even at the beginning of this nation.
7: You know,
8: I love this nation. Great nation. The first great nation. Anti-colonial war. A punctuated event. A real thing that occurred that sublated the current political the state of things, right? This is Marxist, right? Uh, and, and and the people who wish to destroy our nation call themselves Marxist from a purely moralistic standpoint. That's superstructural. What about that is Marxist? It's purely laughable. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and quite frankly, they give us a bad name when they do this. They do wish to destroy our nation, not just say that it, you know, slavery is Immoral. Of course it is. That was the global method of production. Well, you're just supposed to abstract yourself because in the 21st century, this is something that is considered to be bad. Uh, it has no material basis, uh, no real thing tying it down to that specific point in time. But what is important about the uh, American Revolution is that it is a punctuated event in the base amongst the relations of production. Who sublated the current political state of things? This is a purely Marxist analysis.
1: All right, thank you, comrade.
9: We are Leninists. We're not radicals. Let's get that through our head. We are Leninists. Every what that means? Lenin made it very clear what he thought of the revolution in 1776. As communists, we know every society goes through two revolutions. One, a national liberation revolution. Vietnam did it in 75 and tried to do it earlier. The next part of a society, they go through a social revolution, which is a communist revolution. This is straight Marx. Those people who hate America, and there are people who hate America just like they hate their mommy and their daddy. And that's why they join us. They join the communists because they hate their mommy and daddy, believe it or not. And therefore they hate America. It's very simple. That is not what we're about. That's what the ultra left is about. That is the ultra left. The hate America crowd is the ultra left. They don't understand dialectics as other comrades said. So we support wholly the revolution in 1776 with all its imperfections. We still support it because Lenin said it's on the road. We need to go through a war, of national liberation. We were a colony of Britain. We had to free ourselves from British colonialism. We were an anti-colonial revolution. Just the way we have in Philippines and other countries. Thank you.
1: Thank you, comrade. One thing I just wanted to remark real quick was you know, it's funny with the ultra left, they, you know, call themselves anti American. They call themselves, you know, they say that they're against the American Revolution and even the Civil War to some extent. But then on every foreign issue nowadays, every issue of war and peace, they align with the US State Department. You are objectively pro America when it comes to their imperialist policy but you're objectively anti-America when it comes to anything that we could uphold about this country. So it's just very interesting.
3: Yes, I think
1: the record for the uh, number of slaves
3: in America the Revolution is wrong. I think it was 20%, not 13%. I have, like, the American Revolution by Herbert Hap- Hapthaker here, and he said, like, it was six about 600,000 uh, of 3 million.
2: The numbers varied by author. I got it from a different source because they gave a more complete breakdown of society. I had to do some extrapolating as well. Okay, thanks. The law that the British had passed
4: in regards to not moving westward, would that law having been prolonged and the British rule maintained, would that have meant that the ethnic cleansing of the native population would never have happened.
2: Well, I mean, it's hard to speculate, but the British were using that land, even though they restricted it to the American colonists. I mean, you could look at all the other British colonies and see that while the British were still in control, genocide and slavery were still going on. So I don't think it would have been any different.
4: Yeah, I think I'd agree with that.
10: So we are reading more passages of American Revolution by Herbert Abthaker. Curtis P. Nettles, in his valuable study, George Washington and American Independence from 1951, put this very well. British authorities, after 1763, shuddered at the idea of democracy and could be counted on to oppose levelers and reformers in every conceivable way. If the colonies should declare independence, they would be obliged to establish governments on a new basis of authority. Since the resistance was a popular movement, it was inevitable that new governments would rest directly on the people as a whole. To base government on popular sovereignty was to invite its complete democratization, Then farewell to the political power of the aristocracy, which owed its origin to acts of an English monarch, and which had long been upheld by anti-democratic arts and practices. The nature of the colonial movement gave great impetus to the democratic argument. For if the colonial argument rested the American Revolution on the injustice of the arbitrary power of parliament to rule... Did not the same argument apply to those who, wherever they might be, were ruled by others over whom they had no control whatsoever? Thus, British apologists heaped ridicule on the colonial argument that parliamentary taxation was tyrannical, since the Americans had no representation in that body, by declaring that whole cities and boroughs and whole classes of British society also had no direct representation in Parliament, or could cast no vote for its members. Note that they were not called representatives. But these British apologists had logic on their side, only assuming a static quality to the political and social order. Nothing, however, is static, and certainly not political and social orders. For what happened was that, in the colonies, the masses who had been deprived of the suffrage, or had suffered representation. As those in the West, now demanded fuller political rights on the basis of the very arguments used by provincial assemblies vis a vis Parliament, and the British masses likewise raised the same demands. Here are two typical examples of such argument, and that they were published is at least as significant as the fact that they were developed. A Philadelphia mechanic contributed the following letter to the Pennsylvania Gazette, September 27, 1770. It has been customary for a certain company of leading men to nominate persons and to settle the ticket for assemblymen, commissioners, assessors, uh, etc., without ever permitting the affirmative or negative voice of a mechanic to interfere. This we have tamely submitted to so long that those gentlemen make no scruple to say, that the mechanics, though by far the most numerous, especially in this country, have no right to be consulted. That is, in fact, have no right to speak or think for themselves. Have we not an equal right of electing or being elected? I think it absolutely necessary that one or two mechanics be elected to represent so large a body of inhabitants. And here is a letter in the Pennsylvania Journal April 5th, 1776. Do not the mechanics and farmers constitute 99 out of 100 of the people of America? If these, by their occupations, are to be excluded from having any share in the choice of their rulers or forms of government, would it not be best to class divisions and revolutions acknowledge the jurisdiction of the British Parliament, which is composed entirely of gentlemen? So far as the masses and the colonies were concerned, their democratic desires, correctly wrote Alan Nevins in his pioneering study, the American states during and after the revolution, 1924, were among the springs which gave the revolutionary movement its irresistible power. Continuing on from American Revolution by Herbert Abthaker. The American Revolution was the result of the interpretation of three currents, the fundamental conflict in interest between the rulers of the colonizing power and the vast majority of the colonists, the class stratification within the colonies themselves, and the resulting class struggle that marked colonial history, which almost always found the British imperial power as a bulwark of the reactionary or the conservative interests in such struggles. And the developing sense of American nationality. The nature of the revolution transcending class lines, which resulted from the varied origins of the colonies' peoples, their physical separation from England, the different fauna and flora and climate of their surroundings, their different problems and interests, their own developing culture and psychology and even language, their own common history, and from their own experience of common hostility, Varying in degree with place and time towards the powers that be in England. Um, And below we have uh, the Unite or Die, which was originally Join or Die, a political cartoon by Benjamin Franklin. And then there is the Grand Union flag, which was adopted in December 1775 and made obsolete in June 1777 after the Flag Act of that same year was passed. And it represented the colony, the unity of the 13 colonies against Britain. Uh, Next, we have quotes from Thomas Paine's Common Sense. I have heard it asserted by some that as America hath flourished under her former connection with Great Britain, that the same connection is necessary towards her future happiness and will always have the same effect. Nothing can be more fallacious than this kind of argument. We may as well assert that because a child has thrived upon milk, that it is never to have meat, that the first 20 years of our lives is to become a precedent for the next 20. Alas, we have been long led away by ancient prejudices and made large sacrifices to superstition. We have boasted the protection of Great Britain without considering that her motive was interest, not attachment, and that she did not protect us from our enemies on our account but from her enemies on her own account, from those who had no quarrel with us on any other account and who will always be our enemies on the same account. Let Britain waive her pretentious claims to the continent, or the continents throw off the dependence, and we should be at peace with France and Spain were they at war with Britain. The miseries of Hanover last war ought to warn us against connections. But Britain is the parent country, say some. Then the more shame upon her conduct. Even brutes do not devour their young, nor savages make war upon their families. Wherefore, the assertion, if true, turns to her reproach. But it happens not to be true, or only partly so, and the phrase parent or mother country hath been Jesuitically adopted by the king and his parasites with a low, papistical design of gaining an unfair bias on the credulous weakness of our minds Europe and not England is the parent country of America this new world hath been the asylum for the persecuted lovers of civil and religious Liberty from every part of Europe hither have they fled not from the timber the tender embraces of the mother but from the cruelty of the monster and it is so far true of England that the same tyranny which drove the first immigrants from home pursues their descendants still. And here we have recommended reading if you are interested in reading more on the American Revolution. So first off, first book we took a lot of quotes from was The American Revolution, 1763 to 1783 by Herbert Apthaker. Second one is The Colonial Era, also by Herbert Apthaker, and Common Sense by Thomas Paine.
1: And we'll stop real briefly for a round of questions and comments.
11: Yeah, I was going to say that in regards to our last session as well, that we need to try to be much like Stalin as well when it comes to uh, listening to it and analyzing the ultra left and right opportunists as they pop up. Because uh, Stalin, if you didn't know, had in his library an absolute labyrinth of books. And in fact, his political section, he had a section completely dedicated to analyzing Trotsky and all of his works, from the tiny little pamphlets he wrote to the absolute tomes that he would scribble out. Stalin would look through all of his writings, and if there was something that he agreed with, he would underline it and say, this would be useful in the future. If he didn't agree with it, and, you know, through dialectical reasoning, he would use it to absolutely shred Trotsky in polemics at all of the meetings. Point is, is that whenever we need to look at the ultra-left American history and all of that, we need to understand that there are good things about it, bad things about it. But the point is, is that it happened. We can't change it anymore, but we can look at what happened and work to improve the conditions that it led to today. A best example we can look at is that Paul Robeson, who we heard in the song earlier, is the son of a slave. Quite literally, he experienced growing up seeing the results of the American Civil War and he grew up in the post-slavery America and the Reconstruction period. He still, even though he saw all of that, said, America is my country, and I'm going to stay here to help build it into the country it can be. That's all.
1: All right, thank you for that, comrade.
4: So my question is, as our country is born for a natural part of any revolution, is that there are people who want to destroyed the new order that's been created. So uh, I'm kind of curious about
1: actual counter-revolutionaries. I believe the question was if there were any actual counter-revolutionary tendencies following the revolution, meaning against yeah. the American Revolution um, from yeah. inside following it.
2: Um, Aaron Burr, who was a revolutionary during the colonial period, he was part of the Federalists. Under him, they broke the one-party state into a two-party state, the Federalists on one side and the, the Jeffersonians on the other. What he was doing was selling secrets to the British. He was involved with the uh, ransacking of Washington, B.C. when uh, Monroe was a president. Monroe narrowly escaped being uh captured at that point. So there were definitely counter-revolutionaries in this period.
1: All right. Thank you, comrade.
2: Okay. I just wanted to bring up, like, with all of this ultra-left stuff and all of this being against the American Revolution, where does this come from? You know, like, we have to ask these questions. You know, where do these ideas come from that the American Revolution was a reactionary world event, we should have supported the British because they had already outlawed slavery. You know, they come up with these wild and
9: fantastical
2: ideas where some of them we may be able to trace the origins of. The intelligentsia, you know, they come from that. They definitely come from Western academia. You know, it's it's definitely a problem with the intelligentsia in the United States and in Europe. You know, that they constantly kind of push anti-worker ideas, regardless of circumstance, regardless of nuance.
9: Yeah, they come from two sources. They come from the ultra, always have them. In the Soviet Union, in Russia, after the revolution, it was the Trotskyites. In this country, in the 70s, when the CP started to grow, who was attacking us? The Maoists. The Maoists were modern versions of the Trotskyites. The other school is the Frankfurt School of the New Left. Herbert Marcuse was big in the early 60s. He he influenced even Angela Davis. She was the student. The New Left basically doesn't deal with class. It deals with other issues. And that's where the hate America came from. The modern version. The New Left. SDS was the new left, I was in SDS. It was the new left, it definitely was not the old left. The old left was Marx, Lenin and Stalin. The new left was people like Herbert Marcuse. The Soviet Union and the Russian experience was not endemic to them, whereas it was to the old left. So that's where it comes from. It comes from people who are not in the working class, not in the organized working class. They tend to be petty bourgeois radicals. You see it today. The people in this country who have that view, it's not coincidental that they're the same view. Those people do not believe fascism is the ultimate enemy. That's the same, it's not coincidental. So the the new left tends to be on the same side as the State Department on issues of fascism in Ukraine. It's not coincidental. They'll give a different reason why they are pure and they say, we're not gonna support anybody. So if there's an active force fighting fascism, we're not gonna support that active force fighting fascism. Thank you.
3: The, the proclamation line. I'm pretty sure it wasn't like supposed to be permanent. It was just supposed to be like a temporary boundary and they were going to move it over time. And it was later like uh, the Confederation Congress passed a similar ordinance in 1783 that re- basically reaffirmed the proclamation line about not distinguishing like uh, Indian land titles without federal government approval in territorial land. And Oh, yeah, another good book about the American Revolution is uh, The Radicalism of the American Revolution by Gordon Wood.
1: Thank you, comrade.
12: First Continental Congress. In the September and October of 1774, the delegates of 12 of 13 British colonies met in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to convene the First Continental Congress. Grievances against the King of Britain were issued, the meetings for which were held at the Carpenters Hall and the event can be thought of as analogous to the first Congress of a revolutionary party today. There was much debate between the right and the left in attendance about maintaining a relationship with Great Britain versus declaring independence from them. They settled on a compromise, the Continental Association, which banned British goods and called for fundamental rights for Americans, many of which would later translate into the Bill of Rights of the U.S. Constitution. Also endorsed by the Congress were the Resolves of Suffolk County, Massachusetts, which rejected the Massachusetts Government Act and urged colonies to raise their own militias against the British.
1: And just context real quick, the Massachusetts Government Act was basically an act that the British imposed that took away any kind of democracy from the Massachusetts people. They weren't able to govern themselves. Just wanted to add that in there.
12: Battles of Lexington and Concord. The war itself broke out in the colony of Massachusetts in 1775. In February 75, Massachusetts was declared to be in a state of rebellion by the British, and a British garrison set out to disarm the militias in Massachusetts. On April 19th of 1775, the British arrived at the town of Lexington, meeting about 80 militiamen assembled, including Minutemen. A shot was fired, most likely by British forces. This is known as the shot heard round the world. Many shots were fired back and forth following this. The American militiamen retreated to Concord, where more fighters were assembled, especially after they realized the British soldiers were firing ammunition from their muskets rather than just powder. These men had become skilled in guerrilla warfare and had a great knowledge of the countryside, allowing them to cover from and attack pursuing British forces. At Concord, there were approximately 500 militiamen who had heard of the defeat at Lexington and prepared themselves strategically. 700 British soldiers advanced towards Concord and found themselves across the Concord River, about 90 soldiers strong at North Bridge. As they attempted an advance across the bridge, they were fired upon by the militiamen. The British began to suffer heavy injuries and losses and retreated. The militiamen assessed the situation, met with their families and headed out, pursuing the British back to Boston. Many more battles occurred on the way back, including at Brooks Hill, Bloody Angle, Fisk Hill, Minotomy, Watson's Corner, and Charleston. At every battle, the militia forces grew. American militia forces grew from 500 at Concord to 15,000 by the time they surrounded Boston in the morning of April 20th, 1775. The Revolutionary War had officially begun. Second Continental Congress, and Bunker Hill. On May 10th, 1775, delegates from all 13 colonies gathered for the Second Continental Congress. This same day, American forces captured Fort Ticonderoga near what is now the southwest border of the states of New York and Vermont. This Congress would lead the Americans through the war, and this would be the revolutionary organ behind the Continental Army, which was established on June 14, 1775 out of the Massachusetts militia and with George Washington as the general at its command. On June 17th, the Battle of Bunker Hill during the siege of Boston occurred. British forces captured Bunker and Breeds Hills, which were the ideal spots for American militia to assault the city, but did not stop American forces from being able to access Boston assault on Canada and war in America. The Second Continental Congress sends the Olive Branch petition to King George III, but this is ignored as he says the Americans are already in open rebellion and war against the British. Following the defeat at Bunker Hill, the Continental Army begins an expedition to capture Montreal and Quebec, led by Benedict Arnold. Montreal is successfully captured, but Quebec is not. This ends the American entry into what would later be Canada. Battles begin taking place in the Southern colonies too, such as South Carolina and Virginia. The war is intensifying and spreading at this point. Artillery from Ticonderoga is also being hauled to Boston for a final capture of the city. Note on the treachery of Benedict Arnold by Earl Broder. Just as Leon Trotsky, who played a positive role in the October Revolution. Just to betray the revolution, Benedict Arnold was a hero for the revolutionary cause early on to become a counter-revolutionary later on. Earl Browder wrote on Benedict Arnold in Traitors of American History. First, there is Benedict Arnold, whose name takes its place alongside that of Judas for Americans as synonymous with the utmost depths of treachery. Arnold was a close intimate of George Washington. He was described as brilliant and gallant. He was ordered to be tried by court-martial, by act of Congress, but was let off with a reprimand. Washington defended Arnold, disapproved of the court-martial, and afterward invited Arnold to resume a post of honor in the Army, and on his request gave him command of the principal military posts in the country, West Point. One and a half years before receiving this appointment, Arnold was already in treasonable connections with the British. Within a few weeks after receiving this command, Arnold plotted to surrender West Point to the British at a date and hour when Washington, Lafayette, and others were to arrive at West Point. The plot failed only because the go-between, Major Andre, was caught returning through the lines with the documents of the plot. Trotsky and his friends, a century and a half later, had learned to burn their documents. Arnold escaped and openly joined the British, receiving a reward of $30,000 and a brigadier's commission. The Capture of Boston By January of 1776, the artillery from Ticonderoga, nicknamed the Noble Train of Artillery, led by Henry Knox, reached Boston. The artillery was set up in Dorchester Heights, which was a great place overlooking the city to assault from. In March of 1776, British soldiers attempted firing on the fortification but could not reach it from their position. The only other alternative to ending the threat of the artillery was to assault it with troops. The British instead found their position indefensible and withdrew from Boston taking their soldiers and supplies to Nova Scotia to prepare for a counterattack at a later date. American forces captured Boston, the last place the British actually controlled in the 13 colonies, and now held control over the entire territory and were prepared to declare independence in July.
13: I wanted to comment on earlier question talking about counter-revolutionaries. I'm glad we went over the second on Benedict Arnold because it's an important figure to study. But we have a general term for this group of people during this. They were known as loyalists. They're people who remain loyal to the British crown. They still, throughout the whole revolution, saw themselves as British subjects and loyal to the king. Just like in the Russian Revolution, you saw a lot of people stick with the czar, or after the czar was killed, the white army. So it's important to kind of draw comparisons and contrast. And so You know, there were a lot of Americans who joined the British Army uh, or tried to or generally supported it. You know, there's not necessarily like class breakdowns because there's some members of all classes that kind of joined both sides. After the war, it is interesting. There are a few of the wealthier loyalists. They do in a lot of places seem to lose a lot of their wealth or land is confiscated or is broken up or seized. A lot of them end up leaving the U.S. and moving to Canada in order to enjoy british protection up there so there is like this whole other current we don't have time to get into it tonight but if comrades want to look up and study loyalists during and after the revolution that would be a place to go for
1: counter-revolutionaries thank you comrade and i just wanted to add i don't know if we'll ever have a class on this i think that it would be good it would remain to be seen about the war of 1812 which followed all of this and that's when the british came back And a lot of the loyalists ended up being counter-revolutionaries in the field, in America. They invaded, they burned the White House. And that was a justified American war in defense of their country. And I believe that the American Revolution and the War of 1812 are part of four justified American wars. The Revolution, War of 1812, the American Civil War against the Southern Slavocracy, and the intervention in the Second World War against fascism. I just wanted to add that.
8: Hi, I wanted to ask what might be a big question. There are two revolutions that every nation goes through, which would be the their national liberation and the social or communist revolution. And I just wanted to ask what Basic conditions need to be met in the USA before a potentially successful social or communist revolution can occur. I'd
9: like to mention what Lenin said about that. He said, we have to be at the same level with the people. We cannot be too far ahead of them. So we cannot be as a vanguard, be involved with revolutionary activity when the masses are not there yet. Also, we cannot be too far behind the masses. That is a form of tailism. So we have to be right up there. As Comrade Mao said early on, we have to swim with the fishes at the same pace as the fishes. Otherwise, we're going to be left behind, or otherwise, we're going to go too far ahead. So it's not an easy answer. It has, the time has to be right. We don't want to have a situation where we get into a revolutionary situation and we're defeated because it was not right.
1: All right. thank you, comrade.
9: wanted to elaborate a
6: little bit further on that. It also means that it also has to be from a also the situ- the overall overwhelming majority material and circumstance and social circumstances have to be overwhelmingly large in mass numbers. For example, comparison to make with this is that in Russia during the time before 1917, during World War One, at the home front, as well as on the front, both soldiers and the common people that were non-aristocratic class were immensely suffering. They barely could feed themselves and all the above. So something like that also would have to be overwhelmingly like where majority of people, even people that are not in our party, the majority population would have to be on their brink. They're like past their breaking point where people are are starving and otherwise else. Currently, things little bit by little are happening but it's not there yet so that's what it also means by material and suffering circumstances have to be overwhelming and it's not there yet but it's getting there it's creeping toward it but that's also what would have to happen to get people who aren't even communists at the point to want to rally with us thank you
10: all right thank you comrade yeah my quick comment i wanted to make too is you know the way that you can very quickly divide yourself or make yourself seem not sympathetic to the working class is when you run around and yell f america and stuff like that you know the average american worker does not they don't sympathize with that and they don't hold those sentiments and so you know when we talk about the ultra left that is a big part of what they say and that is i mean i would say that is why they have such difficulty even making any inroads with the working classes because they say things that are that very easily alienate themselves from the working class. I, I think that's also one major thing. You know, if there is whenever we are to have a revolution in this country, we have to basically let the working class know we're on their side and we're not going to get there if we, you know, if we just shout slogans at them that are very alien to them.
2: I just wanted to say, um, you know, there's this tendency in society to look back at the past with our uh, current moral lens. And I just wanted to say that history does not, was never governed by uh, the moral lens of a future day. It, it was based on the, the social relations of the given time which was that based on the modes of production. And I just wanted to read a a quote from uh, um, the, the contribution to the critique of the political economy by Marx. At a certain stage of development, the material productive forces of society come into conflict with the existing relations of production, or this merely expresses the same thing in legal terms, with the property relations within the framework of which they have operated hitherto. From forms of development of the productive forces, these relations turn into their fetters. Then begins an era of social revolution. The changes in the economic foundation lead sooner or later to the transformation of the whole immense superstructure. In studying such transformations, It is always necessary to distinguish between the material transformation of the economic conditions of production, which can be determined with the precision of natural science and the legal, political, religious, artistic, or philosophic, in short, ideological forms in which men become conscious of this conflict and fight it out. Just as one does not judge an individual by what he thinks about himself, so one cannot judge such a period of transformation by its consciousness. But on the contrary, this consciousness must be explained from the contradictions of material life, from the conflict existing between the social forces of production and the relations of production."
14: Yeah. I found it interesting in these um, readings that it appeared that um, basically, again, like any time in history, the Brits were trying to um, stifle the Americans in the colonies by all of these provisions. You can't buy land because we need the lands you're on to, to rise in price. Uh, you can't have rights because that's gonna give you the freedom to uh, to gain an economic advantage. And I find it interesting. I mean, you had George Washington as one of the investors in the whole uh, Ohio River Valley. I mean, there was an economic uh, uh, problem right there. Why should the Brits have it when the Americans are there taking care of it? So I just find it quite interesting that um, this repeats itself, this is not, this situation is not unique. I think all of us have have read principles of economy and it's always that way. The people that have the money start stifling because they don't want an expansion because then they lose the uh, money that they have gained from the structure as it's static. And I think what's, uh, the writer mentioned what, what, uh, what do you call it, Tyler just wrote, that you can't keep something static. Something's going to happen. And this is repeated time and time again. In our case, I think we were more what, eloquent. And we really um, hit the, uh, what do you call it, moral milestone in trying to tell the Brits, they can't tell us. Americans, that we can't do this when they themselves can, and they saw that dichotomy and they exploited it. So I just find it quite interesting, uh, the depth with some of what our uh, writers have done on this.
1: All right, thank you, comrade. Um, One of the things I wanted to bring up that was mentioned, I believe, on Tuesday, and it was mentioned as we were making this class as well, is some of the similarities between the American revolution and some of the revolutions that we're familiar with that followed like the Bolshevik revolution. One of the big ones that I saw was that initially um, they were trying to do it peacefully. They had sent the olive branch petition over to King George. They were trying to, um, without conflict, uh, resolve their disputes and get their you know, own control over their land and their um, industries and all that, and that's similar to the Bolshevik Revolution, where at first um, the Bolsheviks were trying to figure out a peaceful uh, way to do their revolution, and they were trying to use the State Duma and different functions within Russia at that time to try to succeed with their revolution. And after a lot of repression, after the you know Provisional Government basically said get bent. Um, They went ahead and had to do it the way that they did it. And so I think that there's some similarity there.
4: This is a little off topic, but just because I know that it's something that um, Christian Parenti and the Midwestern Marx Institute have both talked about, but both have very different stances on with the internal contradiction of the revolutionaries between Jefferson and Hamilton, which of them do we view as having been the progressive role and which of them do we view as having been the reactionary role?
3: I, I think they both had progressive roles to play in different areas. Like uh, they both like opposed slavery uh, to a various extents. Hamilton was uh, a member of the New York uh, Anti-Manumission Society, and like uh, Hamilton, like tried several measures against slavery that were. And even though he didn't free his own slaves, and like uh, Jefferson was like supported the French Revolution and the Enlightenment and many democratic forms, but uh, Hamilton like supported industrialization and uh, and the like. It's complicated, I think.
1: All right, thank you, comrade.
8: Yeah, thank you. Um, I just wanted to say, you know, I think it's really important we not only learn this stuff, but like I use it to identify with because there's such a tendency on the ultra left to like just reject everything like the US, the United States and America stands for. Um and I feel like that's just gonna get us nowhere because like we all need to acknowledge like the Western left is in a terrible state. And we really need to like reach the American people where they're at, and this is where they're at. And we need to like redirect this feeling they have of patriotism towards revolution towards socialism and don't just seed all this stuff you know to reactionaries who will use it for their own means thank you
1: thank you comrade and i definitely agree with that you know i um one of the things that i've tried to you know tell to different leftists when i'm talking to them about the american revolution is that while there were definitely problems that still persisted following it i mean you still had slavery for um, almost a century. Uh, you you had an indigenous genocide that followed, which I think is indefensible. Um, I don't think that colonialist wars are justified. Um, but those are things that we can understand the nuance of and we can say, yeah, that's wrong. But the American Revolution, this war against British colonialism and the vestiges of feudalism and monarchism was still progressive for the time. And it was the first time in history that a country Declared and won its independence from a European power. And that's significant, you know, whether or not the founding fathers own slaves or whatever, you know, ins and outs at the time. Uh, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater or discard the wheat with the shaft. Um, we have to look at these things dialectically and um, take what was progressive and leave what was regressive and still understand it all in its whole and how these things are interconnected.
2: Yeah, there was another um, point I wanted to make on um, today. You'll hear, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, the Western democracies, particularly the U.S., talk about the authoritarian nature of the USSR because they had a unitary state. In other words, a one-party state. Now, I I wanted to bring this up because in... um, after uh, the revolution, uh, Washington it was it was his wish that the that the U.S. remained a single party state. He did this not because he was trying to squash democracy, but rather he thought it was more democratic that there was a unity among the the new revolution uh, revolutionary people that even if they disagree, they can discuss, debate, and come to majority decisions. But only after the splitting into the two-party system, now we have two segments of the working class constantly fighting with each other. That's the only thing that the two-party system has accomplished was was pitting one uh, segment of the working class against the other. Thank you.
1: Thank you, comrade.
8: Not just because uh, the American working class are indeed American and they identify with this stuff. uh, uh, You cannot abstract yourself. uh, Like nationhood is material. It is material reality. You cannot just remove yourself from the basis in which your consciousness is derived from. And uh, mind you, consciousness doesn't necessarily mean what you're aware of. You, You purchasing apples from the grocery store is innately American. Every single one of your beliefs that you don't know why you hold is innately American. You are from here. You cannot abstract yourself from that reality.
1: Thank you, comrade. I definitely agree with that.
3: The Washington Post. Any political parties? I'm not having. I and mean, he didn't want one party. They didn't want any political parties.
1: Thanks. So going forward, this is on the Declaration of Independence, and this is just going to be one slide and then a video. The Declaration of Independence. As the Americans captured Boston and consolidated power in the 13 colonies, they realized now was the time to draft their Declaration of Independence. And the Second Continental Congress formed the Committee of Five to work on the document. This committee included John Adams, representative of Massachusetts and future second president of the United States. Thomas Jefferson, representative of Virginia and the future third president of the United States. Benjamin Franklin, representative of Pennsylvania, Roger Sherman, representative of Connecticut, and Robert Livingston, representative of New York. On July 4th, the United States Declaration of Independence was adopted by the Second Continental Congress at Independence Hall in Pennsylvania. From this moment forward, the United States existed in theory as a country. And I only say in theory because at that time it wasn't confederated yet, it wasn't officially independent. The British hadn't recognized that. But a lot of documents that you'll see say that the United States was founded in 1776. So that's why we say that. And this was the first time in world history that a colony of a European colonial empire declared independence, which inspired countless colonies all across the Americas, Africa, Asia, etc., to do the same later on. And it inspired the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, Bolivarian Revolution, It inspired the Bolshevik revolution later and even the um, revolution in Vietnam. I believe that Ho Chi Minh wrote his Declaration of Independence from the French based on our Declaration of Independence. So it's always been inspirational um, to countries around the world. And that's part of the significance of it.
15: It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies. And such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation, for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial, from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. For cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. For suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever, he has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us, and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince, whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting an attention to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice
1: When they were reading that, of course, there was the slur used about the indigenous people. Let's just understand that for that time, that was unfortunately the language and not try to cancel it based on what we know today and go forward from there.
8: Yeah, so I tried to mull it over. I don't think I'll do it justice To understand what revolution is, well, first off, it's not a grand adventure that a bunch of people who've never handled firearms go on and, you know, shoot a bunch of Americans. Absolutely not. Why on earth would you want to get into a civil war with a bunch of other Americans? What is revolution? Well, you need to answer what evolution is. Evolution is gradual, it's messy, and it's random. Revolution is like a period. On the end of a sentence, it's a determinative punctuation and articulation that captures a revolutionary moment that has been stirring and developing within this evolution, this gradation into qualitative change. This is what revolution is. What does this look like? Well, this is not justified until after the fact. This doesn't happen until we achieve national liberation in the sense of 1776 or social communistic revolution and uh, what does this look like in america well i don't know i can't see into the future neither can you but uh, to lust for it instead of just being a good neighbor and a good american and a good person to the people you love is not what we're about right so what we're about is being upstanding citizens dutifully addicted to the science and application of marxism leninism other than that i would like to highlight a golden center washington satin George Washington sat in between the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist. Alexander Hamilton, who was resoundingly uh, pro-British, got money and political influence from Britain. And uh, uh, Jefferson, right? Now, Hamilton was more materialist. He had an idea of state-owned bank. Jefferson, he was a little bit more floozy. He was interested in, you know, liberties and uh, abstract concepts of freedom. Mm -hmm. George Washington was vehemently against having these addictive and permanent alliances with foreign nations. If there was an alliance to be brewed, it should be purely commercial, not political, and it should last not that long. A temporary alliance, a golden center, our golden Washington center.
13: Well, in the interest of time, I'll make this short. I just remember they mentioning about the monarchy of King Charles. Remember, they still have a monarchy in the UK. While some people like to say, well, the monarchy still doesn't have much political power, they still do. The king does have some influential powers and the former queen also had influential powers too push certain policies and certain members of the cabinets and, and whatnot. Also, they spend a lot of money on ridiculous things just to keep their martyr key looking nice and dainty. So at least we don't have that.
1: Thank you, comrade. And that also makes me want to state that one of the things that we can take away from the American Revolution was that we were able to have over 100 years of developing our own economy, our own culture, our own nation. And then when the time of World War One came, who called to our help? Who decided to call across the ocean and ask for our help? It was Britain. So in effect, they should be happy we declared independence from them, or they might be a part of the German empire now. And that's not to defend U.S. intervention in World War One. That's just to make an observation.
7: I really like the Declaration of Independence part. There was a part in there that reminded me of, they were talking about how like there were judges, it was part of their reasons for wanting to separate, that there were judges who were there for, under basically foreign states, statesmen or something. They were there on their behalf and often deprived citizens, calling us of due process. And it reminds me of, I think it was a Tucker Carlson segment talking about how like, the DOJ was indicting Black peace activists over supposed ties with Russia. It just made me think, you know, all of that kind of history of foreign governments having an influence on potentially sovereign state, but then now it's being reversed nowadays to attack activists and peace movements. And a lot of people, especially in the even the Fox News wing will say, like, "Oh, it's a rich elite or something that's paying judges off to, you know, make legal decisions." So it's definitely an interesting. It was just a comment. Appreciate the education to me.
6: In light with this, I'd recommend reading also a few other books by notable people of re- revolutionary movements, being Sun Yat-sen, who and Ho Chi Minh. Both were successful revolutionary leaders who were inspired by the American Revolution. This is how legitimate the American Revolution was. And they both stated when life is so miserable for so long, you've tried negotiations and it fails and then more suffering. And it's endangering your very existence as a people. A complete annihilation like you don't exist afterwards. That is the point. When it's proper. Thank you.
8: How come uh, the declaration deviated from Locke, uh, the pursuit of life, liberty, and property that's Lockean? Uh, But Jefferson, he made the uh, metaphysical assertion that it's life, liberty, pursuit
4: of happiness.
1: I'm not sure of that. I saw that in the document as well and was curious about that.
9: I want to mention, that's a fantastic question. This reading was the Declaration of Independence, correct? yes and it differs from the one that we were taught in school
1: i think what he was saying was that it differs john locke had life liberty and property this one was life liberty and the pursuit of happiness
9: right right that's the one we were taught life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and it's obvious that at that time at that time to own property was happiness, was considered the ultimate happiness.
5: That's interesting, thank
9: you.
1: All right. thank you, comrade.
5: Yeah, I wanna thank everybody for the class, and I'm just gonna say what I said on Tuesday, the same thing, that we have to defend this history and that no one else will do it for us. And when you go to other countries, like Korea, for example, or, or Russia, they uphold these kind of events in their history at the same time we're not going to water it down as we know with what sam webb did which was for its own class but it's up to us to to support the american revolution and our line basically is or well one of the lines is this is the school so it's not we're not telling people things but is that the the american revolution was a positive event in world history, and that there'll be a second revolution, it's gonna be continued. The American Revolution will be continued and there'll be a socialist revolution in the future.
1: All right, thank you, comrade. And I also just wanted to add that the American Revolution is one of, you know, what I think is four justified wars that we really have to defend as Americans, which is the American Revolution, the war against British colonialism, and feudalism monarchy etc the war for our independence the war of 1812 which was defending us against um an attempt by britain to basically take back what they had lost and stop that revolution the american civil war which was a war against southern slavocracy uh war against chattel slavery which was basically capitalist against slavery it was still progressive at the time and our intervention in World War II, which was a necessary, you know, united front with the USSR and the other Allied powers against world fascism. So I think those are the things that we really have to defend. And you know, there's a tons of other different conflicts in our history that the government has fought. There has been, like I said, colonialist wars, which I don't think were justified. There's been imperialist wars, I don't think were justified. But when it comes to those four main wars, that's our history right there. And we have to defend it, or America would be balkanized. I mean, if we don't defend our country, our country's not going to last.
16: Good evening, comrades. I just wanted to mention the Bill of Rights. It's not really the American Revolution, but sure is related. You know, comrades, the First Amendment give us freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, and the freedom from religion, meaning the definition of secularism. The American state is secular, does not impose any religion, does not impose people to believe in God or not. So, when it says, in God we trust on the money printed by the government, it's in contradiction with the first amendment. When people are supposed to swear on a religious book in court, that's contradictory to the first amendment. And if a president is supposed to swear allegiance or whatever uh, on a, a religious book, it's contrary to the First Amendment. That's all, comrade.
1: Thank you, comrade. And yeah, the separation of church and state was very important to the founding fathers. And I think that, you know, the Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution is going to be something that we're undoubtedly going to have to touch on next week because it's what followed the American Revolution, even after the Articles of Confederation. And a lot of what got into the Bill of Rights were basically the freedoms that people were pushing for during the American Revolution. So thank you, comrade.
7: I have a question. And the question is, I remember my history teacher told me that Joey Washington made a promise to the slaves that if they serve in the Revolutionary War, they would be able to own themselves. Is that true? I I guess it was in my recollection of my history teacher in high school who told me that.
2: In Herbert Ethiker's book, uh, at the end, he talks about the role of uh, Black Americans uh, and uh, the granting of freedom of after they uh, serve in the war. Many did gain uh, freedom. A lot of them uh, moved up to some of the northern states where slavery was already being abolished, like in Vermont. Um, some went up into Canada. But that is true for some of them, but uh, others, there were uh, counter-revolutionary uh, people in the slave that held back their end of the bargain. As far as uh, Washington, I'm not entirely sure.
9: To this day, that custom has stayed. Anybody who's not a citizen, and joins the armed services becomes automatically free. They become U.S. citizens. So that's something that lasted till this day. Those Southern slave owners did not allow their slaves to participate in the American Revolution. Those in the North did not own slaves, Blacks, did do that the famous quote by uh the song by paul robeson mentions that um there was a uh, a bridge in concord in the north in which there was a battle and he talks about that so i don't know about washington either but it to me it makes sense that that did was said because that's did that is what happened thank you
2: these new traditions in the you know, in the ultra-left to, to cast down at American history. We already agree that we love the American people and this country, but we want to take back the, the country from those who robbed us, the, the elites that exploit us. We don't want to put to shame all the working class people who have built up this country If we deny their historic and revolutionary role in society, what are they going to look back to to guide them forward? So all I see in the ultra leftist tendencies to disavow our history is to just cause shame and confusion among the working people.
1: Thank you, comrade. And I think that, you know, I think it also just plays a counter-revolutionary role of confusing the American working class about our own revolutionary history. We can question how much the intelligence agencies are involved in that effort.
8: Yes, uh, I do believe it's important to criticize secularism. Secularism is a part of the current hegemony. Uh, In fact, it's right there in our Declaration of Independence. Our inalienable rights are bestowed upon us, not by the government which can be corrupted, they're bestowed upon us by God, by our creator. Uh, it is only the government's role to ensure those rights are not infringed upon. And when they fail in doing that, well, then they get sublated. Uh, I would like to quote Karl Marx. From the union of believers with Christ, according to John 15, showing its basis in an essence, in absolute necessity and its effects. When we consider also the history of individuals, when we consider the nature of man, it is true that we see a spark of divinity in his breast, a passion for what is good, a striving for knowledge, a yearning for truth. But the sparks of the eternal are extinguished by the flames of desire. Enthusiasm for virtue is drowned by the tempting voice of sin. It is scorned as soon as life has made us feel its full power. The striving for knowledge is supplanted by a base, striving for worldly goods, longing for truth is distinguished by the sweetly flattering powers
9: of lies. I just want to mention, the founding fathers, including Ben Franklin, all believed in some kind of a deity. They mentioned it. The difference is that at that time, there was such a thing as state religion. They were opposed to state religion. That's what they were opposed to, and they made it clear. And that's why there was no state church in the colonies or in the United States. Never was. So that's what they were alluding to. Let's look at the world that they looked at, not what we're looking at in the 21st century. That's all. And that goes for every single thing. Thank you.
1: All right. Thank you, comrade. And thank you, everybody, for your comments and different insights tonight. I think it was a really good class, especially really necessary, because what other group out there, what other Marxist-Leninist school is going to touch on the American Revolution? Even the fairly you know, decent other groups out there, they don't seem to be talking about it right as we're getting around to July 4th. And in three years, it's going to be the 250th anniversary. It's something that we should be proud of. And I just wanted to say that real quick. Thank you all for attending the class tonight and have a good night, comrades, and have a good 4th of July.